And that's the whole point. This whole thing is literally a religion. The virology is a religion. Allopathic medicine, for the most part, aside from emergency and acute care and certain specialties, has become a religion. It absolutely has. And that's the issue right now because it is going off of blind faith in these experts who can know where this non-existent, non-proven to exist, non-proven to be pathogenic threat is, and only they can know. And anyone who questions them is immediately branded a heretic and they're cast aside. It's literally no different than a very dogmatic religion. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing and potentially worse because irrespective of actual religious or spiritual beliefs, they're pushing this upon the entire human population. So it's definitely worse. Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigalov where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigaloff was either off-duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigaloff was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigaloff. All right, well, thank you for joining me again. Today I have a very special guest that I'll introduce in just a moment, but first I want to give a special shout-out and thanks to all my Patreon supporters. We have Shell Pace at the $50 level. We have an anonymous family donor at $20.20 a, a month. The Plandemic Reprimando at $17.76 a month with Ty, Charles, Tinfoil, Stanley, Dr. Anna, who is a previous guest here, Frank, and Brian. We have the self-made $10 level with Kevin. We have the Refine Not Burned at $5 with Linda, Emmy, Joe, Pat and Bev, PJ, Rebecca, Marcus, Elizabeth, Dawn, Jennifer, Ken. We have a self-made $1.50 with Frank. And then we have the Courage is Contagious $1 level with Amanda, Jay, Spesnasty, Darrell, Susan, BB King, also a previous guest here, and Rick. I want to thank everybody for supporting me. If you feel inclined to, to go donate at the Give, Send, Go that my wife set up, the link is down below. We've spent over $100,000 fighting the DOD, trying to restore my good name, get case law in the book so that this never happens to another physician, to, to protect the Constitution as my Fifth Amendment rights and First Amendment rights have been horribly violated in egregious ways. Let's get to our guest. Thanks for joining us. Alec. Alex Zek yeah. of The Way Forward. It's great to have you. Yeah, great to be talking to a fellow service member, although I'm no longer one, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, you've still been through the pain. You know what it's like. Yeah, I know what it's like. Exactly. Yeah, good to be here. And so you have a big program that's coming up soon. That's what we're going to talk about. But I want to probably dive into a little more of the one of the big subjects that you're covering at this event that you have. It's called The End of COVID. So what is The End of COVID? Yeah, so of course we know the World Health Organization has announced that the emergency is over and the White House has said the same and everyone is taking on a general sense, whether they're alternative leaning or not, that all this whole COVID era of their plan, whoever they are, is over. But the reality is it never really began in the first place. And I'll say that in some more alternative leaning people will say, yeah, I agree. It was a big hoax, but then they'll also say, but they're making bioweapons in a lab and we need to be cautious of the future stuff that they're doing with eco health Alliance and all these level BSL level four labs all over the world. And the reality is when I say that it never began, it actually never began in the sense that there was never any proof of any physical material threat that necessitated all of these health measures in the first place. And 
that may come across as a shocking statement to some people, but I'm of course happy to get into the details. And that's what we do with the end of COVID is it's covering all of the granular details of what happened the last three and a half years and beyond so that we can ensure this never happens again. And I promise that we absolutely, we the men and women of this world can ensure this never happens again, but it requires that we are properly informed on what health actually looks like and where freedom comes from in our relationship to the various governments around the world. Yeah, so that's interesting. And you're touching on a subject that we're going to dive into here. But when you start looking at truth and you start figuring out, okay, I've been lied about this. I've been lied about that. I've been lied about this. And you start tugging at that string of truth. It's like a tapestry. It goes here, it goes there. And pretty soon everything unravels. And you're like, wow, I didn't expect it to go to this topic or that topic or this topic. And even topics that we've grown up knowing about, or at least thinking we knew about. So what you're talking about is viruses viruses are so interesting to me ever since i heard about them like in eighth grade i was like it's not alive how, how can something not alive hurt me but it's not really dead because it takes over your cell or is it e anything at all yeah and this is the question that is the big question and a very important question as it pertains to everything it is the basis for everything that occurred over the last three and a half years and it underpins much of allopathic medicine, and especially so with the vaccine program, which I'm assuming much of your audience is already aware that there are safety and efficacy, glaring safety and efficacy problems with vaccines, but the reality is much, much deeper than that. So I, I like to start this conversation with some analogies for contextual purposes, and they may seem elementary, but they are absolutely important in, in how they we can communicate this idea that viruses may not even exist and have never been proven to cause any sort of disease whatsoever. And so the first one is, from the time that I'm a child, I'm told that Santa Claus exists. And a number of things in my environment reify the existence of Santa Claus. The pictures, the movies, the cartoons, the songs, the decorations, all of the other people around me who are excited about Santa Claus, the Santa Claus sleigh tracking app that I follow on my phone the night before Christmas, or Fox News or CNN following Santa Claus' trajectory across the sky, the piece of beard I find in the fireplace, the half-eaten cookies and milk on Christmas morning, the presents under the tree, the reindeer tracks in the yard. Some families do that. Ultimately, all of these things reaffirm that Santa Claus actually exists. And especially so when I feel very excited, I have a measurable and observable biological response to the idea of Santa Claus, or I'm very afraid because I haven't been behaving well. I've been lying to my parents and they found out and they said, Santa Claus is going to bring you coal. And then I feel very afraid about the idea of Santa Claus. And it's a measurable and observable biological response. All of these things must mean that Santa Claus actually exists, right? But of course, despite the model <laughs> fitting the idea of Santa Claus and fitting it very well, especially from the vantage point of a child, there are other explanations for those phenomena surrounding the idea of Santa Claus. And of course, as a child, at some point, we have to break through the cognitive dissonance surrounding that. And luckily, 
the experts on Santa Claus, if you will, our parents and the rest of the parents around the world can eloquently explain exactly what was going on with each of those things as we're beginning to unravel that cognitive dissonance. So that's the first one. So keep that in the back of your mind. And the second one is, this comes from Dr. Cowan's book, The Contagion Myth. And this is my own sort of variation of this thought experiment. If I were to tell you that a ping pong ball could break down a brick wall, obviously you'd want to see proof of that, right? So if I took a bunch of corrosive acid and poured it all over the brick wall, then took a giant mallet and smashed the brick wall several times, and then I taped the ping pong ball to a giant 400 pound boulder and whirl it at the brick wall and the brick wall falls down, voila, I've proven that the ping pong ball caused the destruction of that brick wall. Obviously. Of course. Yeah, obviously. Of no. course, any person thinking logically would say the ping pong ball was completely irrelevant in that whole exercise. There's no proof whatsoever that the ping pong ball caused the destruction of that brick wall. How do both of these thought experiments relate to virology and viruses? So if I were to tell you that SARS-CoV-2 has never been isolated or proven to exist or proven to cause any sort of disease whatsoever, which I'm sure some of the people in the health freedom community and some of your audience are loosely familiar with, you would likely go on to PubMed, or maybe if you're familiar with it, you would just say, oh, that's irrelevant. And I'm going to explain why it's not irrelevant. It is absolutely very relevant. You would go on to PubMed, though, if you've never heard this before, or you'd go on to Google Scholar. Or you'd contact a doctor or scientist friend of yours and you'd find one or thousands of studies that claim in the title and in the abstract to have isolated, characterized, and sequenced come up with a, a genome for SARS-CoV-2. The problem with that is the commonly accepted definition of isolate that virtually all of the entire world uses and I've memorized all this stuff. So the Webster's, Webster's Dictionary definition of isolate is to separate from other substances so as to obtain in a pure or free state. That is what we know to isolation to mean all across the world, with the exception of virology. Because what we're doing, what we're thinking of isolation to mean is to take one thing and have it completely by itself, separate of all other things. If you were to tell me, hey, I need you to grab the water bottle out of that messy room from your mom's house, the blue water bottle I have, and she's a hoarder, so it's amongst a bunch of other stuff, and you come back with a sock and 30 other things, I said, no, I want the water bottle. And you're like, okay, fine, I got the water bottle. I've isolated the water bottle. I have it by itself. I can show you that the water bottle exists. I can show you what it's made of. So if you read the methods section of any of those papers that in the title say they have isolated SARS-CoV-2 or insert literally any other virus, you will find that the following procedure is done. And keep in the back of your mind the brick wall analogy that I used earlier. So they take Before snot or other fluids from a person. Yeah, go ahead. Before you get too far into this, because I want to cut the knees out of the naysayers. But Alec, you're not a doctor. Alec, you don't, you're a field artillery officer. Back, okay, let me put all those to rest. Because what's important is when someone devotes a meaningful part of their life to studying a particular subject because they have a passion for it, they become an expert. Even if they don't have the PhD, and we talked about this a little before we started recording, even if they don't have the PhD letters behind their name, Alec 
knows more than most virologists because he's put more time into it. He's looked into those parts of virology that most people don't look into. He, just like when I was asking why, in reference to the shot, and what is this chemical, what is that compound, what, is, what are these rules and regulations mean, what is this little asterisk here next to the M in mRNA, what does that mean? It means modified. Okay, no one else looked at that. Why did no one else look at that? Because we just assume what we're given is the truth, and that's what you can never do. You have to investigate everything, question boldly the very existence of God, for if there is a God, he would prefer honest questioning to blind faith, and that's what Alec has done. Yeah, you know, I'm going to build off what you said, and you said that so well. And other people will ask, with what I'm about to share here, do you think all virologists are in on it? And because we're speaking here to a crowd that is largely familiar with the problems with vaccines, I'll, I'll ask you this question. I want you to sit and think on this. Are all doctors in on this grand scheme when it comes to this understanding that vaccines aren't safe and effective? Absolutely not. They've simply been conditioned to believe what they believe, and that's what they're basing their decisions off of in their respective practices and in the way they approach medicine. It's the same thing with virology and virologists. Virologists have been taught this procedure that I'm about to describe to, quote, isolate viruses as if it is a well-established, well-known, scientifically rigorous fact on how to isolate viruses and determine pathogenicity that was ultimately established in 1954 with John Franklin Enders having, quote, discovered the measles virus, which I, of course, can get into. But so <laughs> with this claim that are in these papers that the virus has been isolated and shown to exist and shown to be pathogenic, they've sequenced the genome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the procedure that is done. If you read the methods section, which is the most important section of any scientific paper, quote scientific paper, because some of them aren't even scientific. They don't adhere to the scientific method, which I'll get to in a minute. But any scientific paper, the methods section is the most important paper. It shows the procedure for how they conducted the experiment. And with virology, this is what they do. They take fluids from a sick person that they that is claimed to be infected with a virus, right? They take those fluids, assuming that there is a virus present, but never validating the physical existence of a virus, right? They then take those fluids and add them to what's known as viral transport medium or VTM. Inside viral transport medium at a minimum are amphotericin B and gentamicin. Amphotericin B is there to keep the viral, the mixture, the fluids from a sick person and the, the materials they add it to afterwards free of fungi. And then gentamicin is there to keep the material sterile and free of bacteria. But nonetheless, those are two things that are inside viral transport medium. And I'll discuss why that is highly relevant to this procedure here in a second. So they take snot from a sick person assumed to contain a virus, but they never validate that it's there. Add it to viral transport medium that has these substances inside of it. They then take that mixture and add it to a monkey kidney cell known as a Vero E6 or a Vero CCL81 cell line coming from an adult green monkey kidney. So these kidney cells that they add this mixture to, they also add more amphotericin B and more gentamicin. Sometimes they use geneticin rather than gentamicin. And remember, those are there to allegedly keep the culture sterile and free of bacteria and fungi. 
They then add Dilbeco's Modified Eagle Medium or Dilbeco's Minimal Essential Medium. They then also add Fetal Bovine Serum, which are essentially, for lack of a better term, food sources for the cell, right? And then they also add trypsin sometimes, which is essentially a, something that breaks down protein. So they add all of these substances to a monkey kidney cell alongside fluid from a sick person that they assume contains the virus, but never validate that a virus is there in the first place. And the reason why this is a problem, there's a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is that amphotericin B and gentamicin are known to be cytotoxic specifically to kidney cells. If you look up with a quick Google search keywords, amphotericin B, toxic kidneys, or gentamicin, toxic kidneys, you'll find a number of results describing how, as an example, amphotericin B is known to cause renal failure. What's renal failure? That's kidney failure. And they're adding amphotericin B to a monkey kidney cell, assuming that it has no effect on the cell except for to keep the culture free of fungi. So in addition to that, these are all confounding variables. Think back to the example of the brick wall analogy, right? The ping pong ball in this case is akin to the virus. The difference with the ping pong ball brick wall analogy is that the ping pong ball is what is present. You know it's actually there. With this, they assume that the virus is present, add these other confounding variables that are akin to pouring corrosive acid on a brick wall, akin to smashing the brick wall several times, that is dropping the nutrient intake of the culture. They drop the amount of fetal bovine serum and DMIM that is used, and then they add these cytotoxic antibiotics and antimycotics to the mixture again, without ever validating that a virus is present in this experiment in the first place, then the cell experiences after basically being starved and poisoned what is called the cytopathic effect. And that's where the cell breaks down into a bunch of fragments. They then take those fragments and prepare them for electron microscopy. And they produce these electron micrograph images, these little black and white images that we've seen shared all over the world. And they point to the particles on those images and say, voila, that is proof of SARS-CoV-2. This must have been what was inside the fluids of a sick person. This must be what was transmitted from another sick person to that sick person. This must be what was what caused the cell to experience the cytopathic effect, breaking down to a bunch of fragments. Never mind that we added all of these other things and dropped the nutrient intake of the cell. This is the fundamental proof that virology has used for the last several decades to prove the existence and pathogenicity of viruses, and it applies to every single virus. You will never find an image coming directly from the fluids of a sick person of viruses, and you and a virus has never been taken directly from the fluids of a sick person to then be isolated, purified, characterized, and sequenced. They always follow this procedure of assuming that it's in the fluids and then adding it to a bunch of other substances wherein it breaks down, and then they point to the particles and say those are viruses. It seems like there's a lot of assumption going on. First of all, assuming that the illness is caused by a virus, because as probably many of our listeners know, there are other things in our environment that are not virus. And you could even have pieces of DNA or RNA released from one human that go to another human that notify them, hey, look, watch out for this chemical or this compound. Here's how you deal with it. And could we be calling that a virus when it's not? It's just, it, it's a piece, it's a strand that's man-made 
not in a lab, but just by you and me when we get exposed to certain chemicals so that we can warn other humans around us, watch out for this. This is how you deal with it. There's other EMF around us that's a lot more than it used to be. And it's interesting how when you look back in time as viral illnesses, like if you look back in, in antiquity, almost all of the great pandemics were caused by bacteria until a certain time frame when we started having radio waves and telegraph waves and all these different antenna and telegraph wires that would emit EMF and all these different types of radiation exposure that never happened before. Yeah, you're spot on with that. And there are other plausible explanations for what's going on because, so this, again, just to reemphasize, is the foundational evidence for all of modern virology. And ultimately, it's fundamentally pseudoscientific by definition. Pseudoscience is anything claiming to be scientific that does not strictly adhere to the scientific method. Virology is pseudoscience because they don't adhere to the scientific method. So the scientific method that we all learned in grade school goes like this. You have an observed natural phenomenon, right? So in the case of this, you could say, okay, I observe multiple people in the same space getting sick with similar or the same symptoms. Okay, so then you develop a hypothesis for that observed natural phenomenon, what you think is the cause of it, right? So in this case, you could say, I think there's submicroscopic particles being passed from person to person. Okay, so then in order to proceed with the experiment, and before you proceed with the experiment, following these steps of the scientific method, which are very clear, you need to have the thing you think is the cause of the observed phenomenon by itself to then vary and manipulate to see if it produces the effect, right? You need to have the IV to see if it produces the DV. That is the whole point of the experiment. So with virology, they don't have their alleged cause, the virus, by itself to then vary and manipulate. And in fact, they've never shown that it exists in the fluids of a sick person according to their own hypothesis. So they are still at the hypothesis phase of this whole ideology. So when it comes to virology, it's not even a viral theory. It's still viral hypothesis because a scientific theory is something that has been tested and corroborated in, according, in accordance with the scientific method. So virology has not done this. They have no properly identified independent variable. And further, they don't even have proper controls either. They, in some of these papers, they will refer to what's called a mock-infected culture. And they say the mock-infected culture, no cytopathic effect was observed. So the culture is the monkey kidney cell thing. The problem with this is when we when several of us, namely Dr. Mark Bailey and then a good friend of mine, Jacob Diaz, have contacted the authors of these papers or found papers that have supplementary method section describing exactly what occurred in the mock-infected culture. Remember, the purpose of a control experiment is to treat it exactly the same except for the independent variable is not present, right? To see if the independent variable is truly the cause of that phenomenon. And again, with virology, they don't even have an independent variable. Let's, but let's say in the case of this, it would be, we could make concessions and say, okay, even though you don't have a proper independent variable and they have all these excuses for why they can't take it directly from the fluids of a sick person, we could still play with it and conduct some semblance of what would be a proper control experiment. But what they do is, they treat the mock-infected culture with less amphotericin B and less gentamicin, sometimes using a completely different cell line. 
so they're not treating the mock infected culture the same and further if so we're there's assuming no control. there's that no control there's no control there's no control exactly and that's the point and, and again assuming that they that will we'll play with the excuse for the excuses for why which i'm happy to get into they can't take the virus directly from the fluids of a sick person let's play with that that's fine but wouldn't it then make sense to treat the mock infected culture with fluids from a healthy person to see if the same effect occurs they don't mm -hmm. even do that they it would just make sense they literally don't add any fluids yeah it would, exactly that's it the would be point and yeah yeah exactly Exactly. And so um, ultimately, let me describe this piece first, because this is highly relevant, because as I was sorting through my cognitive dissonance surrounding this, looking into these papers, reading the method section for myself, I was like, what the heck? Okay, but I want to hear directly from the horse's mouth, these experts, why a virus cannot be taken from the fluids of a sick person? Why a virus cannot be isolated, purified, characterized, and sequenced directly from the fluid? Sorry, do you want to go ahead with a question? Yeah, one thing you mentioned yeah. is you kind of just said, my cognitive dissidents, and just very flippantly mentioned that, but when you really have cognitive, which I know you went through, it was probably similar to what I went through when I learned about food and different ways of eating and how you can treat disease and cure disease and put other diseases into remission with just what you eat. I was in a cloud for a month, walking, confused, didn't know where I was. It was so substantial, and I would imagine that you were going through. Again, you just again, I you just flippantly mention it, but I've been through that dissociative dichotomy where you're just like, I'm told this, I've learned this my whole life, and now I, this is what I'm learning, and it's, it just it splits your head in half, and it's painful. It's physically painful. It is. And this is highly relevant with my own cognitive dissonance surrounding this whole charade, which I'm happy to get to later. I think if we talk about gain of function and things like this, it's highly relevant for me. So we'll get to we'll get to that in a second. But the, the when you ask virologists and molecular biologists and other experts that deal with infectious diseases and fields surrounding infectious diseases, and you ask them why a virus cannot be isolated, purified, characterized, and sequenced directly from the fluids of a sick person, they give a number of excuses that, if you're attuned to logical fallacies, are entirely logically fallacious and completely contradictory towards their own ideas of how this whole thing works, how these diseases are supposedly spread. So one of the answers that we get is they'll say that a virus is too weak to isolate or purify directly from the fluids. And how okay. is it so contagious? And we have the technology to do that. Yeah, this is the question, right? That's the question that I ask. I say, that's interesting. You say that it's too weak to isolate or purify directly from the fluids of a sick person. Okay, then how come you also say that a virus travels through, freely through the air, lands on a surface, survives on a surface for upwards of two to three days, makes it to a body, makes it all the way to a cell, breaks into the cell, hijacks the cell's machinery, begins a replication process where it then overwhelms that person, is excreted out of them where it repeats the same process over. So it's too weak to isolate or purify directly from the fluids of a sick person where you claim that it is, but then it is strong enough to do all of these other things and it is strong enough to literally infect someone and kill them. That makes well, no Alex sense. That's because Santa Claus is only around on December 25th. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly right. This is and this is why the Santa Claus analogy is so relevant too, because like 
ultimately when you're fibbing to your kids about Santa Claus, you're coming up with all these excuses. And ultimately what that is in actuality is called a reification fallacy. You're providing excuses for why the kids can't find Santa Claus despite Santa Claus allegedly existing. And a reification fallacy is where you assign characteristics to something that is still fundamentally abstract that has not been proven to exist in reality. So when it comes to anything surrounding viruses, describing, oh, how viruses are only going to be infectious in this way, or viruses can't be isolated because X, Y, and Z, or a virus mutates over time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's ultimately a reification fallacy because you're assigning characteristics to something that is still fundamentally abstract. And then the other excuse that they commonly give is that there's not enough virus present inside the fluids of a sick person to isolate or purify directly from the fluids. And then a quick Google search will show you estimates of 200 million virus particles in one sneeze. So you're telling me that this highly pathogenic infectious agent that is allegedly killing people is there's not enough of it in one sneeze. That makes no sense. But there's enough to make you sick. Just not enough to isolate and actually yeah. use. Yeah. Just not enough to find. Yeah. So then the cognitive dissonance when, and I urge anyone listening to what I'm saying first off to, of course, check out the end of COVID where we go into extensive details. In fact, the first two modules for the end of COVID cover virology. I think it's somewhere around like 16 hours of content just in the first two modules, dissecting all these claims surrounding virology and getting into things like genomic sequencing of viruses, the spike protein, getting into things like gain of function, which I'm happy to touch on a little bit later. But I urge anyone to look into this for themselves. And then the other thing with this is people operate, even amongst the health freedom crowds, as if it is a well-established fact that disease is spread via the fluids of a sick person. But this is actually based in an unproven assumption as well. And we can refer to a number of experiments that have been done over uh, up until roughly like 1940, 1950, when they stopped doing them for what they say was unethical because it was unethical. But it's ultimately because they were not able to produce the results <laughs> that they wanted to go with their preconceived notions around how disease was spread. And one of the common examples that I'm sure some people are familiar with are the Rosenau experiments that occurred during the Spanish flu from 1918 through 1919. During the height of the Spanish flu, Milton Rosenau conducted several experiments on in two different quarantine locations where he took a hundred volunteers from the Navy. Of course, he used the military <laughs> as guinea pigs because that's what is nothing's typically changed. done. Sorry, I had to just because I knew you'd get it. <laughs> yeah, nothing's changed. Took two volunteers or a hundred volunteers from the Navy and exposed them via various methods to fluids from Spanish flu patients, like their nasal secretions, even took infected blood from Spanish flu patients and injected it directly into these healthy patients, took several of the, or, or, sorry, of the healthy volunteers, took several of the healthy volunteers, brought them to a Spanish flu ward and had them interact with, shake hands with, had these Spanish flu patients who were in a Spanish flu ward, open mouth cough into their faces, had them hug, all these things. Disgusting. And then it turns out the results of the experiment were 
zero of the 100 volunteers became sick. And Milton Rosenau was quoted as saying something to the effect of, we went into the outbreak with the notion that we knew how this disease was spread. See, they already had that preconceived idea, as much of us do surrounding this whole thing, that we know disease is spread via the fluids of a sick person. We know that by being around who's sick, I will also get sick. We already know this. It's a well-established fact, but it's not because zero out of 100 in that experiment became sick. And that's one of several experiments that during the end of COVID in session 11 called the proof of contagion, we go into a number of these experiments claiming to have or attempting to prove that disease is passed via the fluids of a sick person. And all of them turned out to show the opposite. In fact, one of the examples, some of the volunteers in a control experiment were injected with saline and more people were became sick after being infected with saline than those who were exposed to the fluids of a sick person. So that sort of reemphasizes how belief plays into this. And I'm happy to also talk about belief later on during this too, because that's a huge factor according to even the CDC's own data. Yeah, that's interesting that the placebo had worse outcomes because usually placebos are, those people do better. That's what we test is yeah. a fake drug to make yeah. them think they're feeling yeah. better when we did the exact opposite. We gave them a fake injection, making them think they got the illness and then they got the illness. Yeah, and this is what's referred to not as the placebo effect, but the nocebo effect. And I highly encourage people to look up the placebo and nocebo effect. You can literally manifest worse outcomes just by your own belief. And I think it's relevant, so I'll just say it's according to the CDC's own data, 95% of COVID deaths had an average of four comorbidities, which is not super surprising. So that means that only 5% of those that were labeled COVID deaths had no additional cofactors for death. 95% of them had an average of four. So it was people who are already very unhealthy, overwhelmingly, who are passing away. And that also brings up the question of what is your definition of healthy at this point? Because even those 5% of people who allegedly had no comorbidities, I would have loved to see what their health level was. But in addition to that, 79% of hospitalizations were in overweight or obese people. And the second strongest risk factor for death, according to a study published in part by the CDC in July of 2021, found that the second strongest risk factor for death was fear slash anxiety related disorders. So think about the implications of that. That's not even people who are just in a perpetual state of fear or anxiety, wound up in the hospital, wound up being thrown on remdesivir and a ventilator, et cetera, et cetera, then end up passing away. These are people who had an anxiety or fear related disorder, meaning or implying, I would imagine that they had already been diagnosed previously with a fear slash anxiety related disorder. So it doesn't even account for those who were just in a perpetual state of fear, but that did not have a diagnosed disorder, which really shows how much of a factor fear plays into this whole thing. Our belief surrounding something, going back to the Santa Claus example, irrespective of whether it exists or not, can actually manifest symptoms of illness. And a lot of people in the alternative health community will say, I wasn't scared of this virus. I wasn't scared at all. I knew it was just the flu rebranded. But were you afraid of government tyranny? Were you afraid of the uncertainty? And ultimately, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I wasn't. I absolutely was at points. And fear is not discriminating based on whether you're scared of the virus or scared of something else. You were just in a perpetual state of fear. And that can lead to real symptoms of illness. And when this whole thing kicked off, I was fearful of the virus. Like I, I set up our little, we had a little, like a garage disconnected from the house and we lived in Alaska 
below zero temperatures. It's pretty chilly out there. But I set it up to where if I needed to, I could go out there because I didn't want to get kill my family because I was like, oh, goodness, this COVID thing is going to kill us all. 1918 flu all over again if I only did my homework beforehand and realized that's not what it was either, the 1918 flu. Yeah, and this kind of just shows the level, like, because I don't know where you were with all vaccines and studying the true nature of the pharmaceutical industry and stuff like that. But just prior to this whole charade kicking off, I had already researched the vaccine industry. And in fact, my like I had already had my child, my first son, and he was completely unvaccinated because I was aware of the harmful nature and the corrupt nature of the pharmaceutical industry. But I did believe that viruses existed and caused disease, but I took the approach without really exploring terrain that, oh, you won't get as sick or they won't cause that big of an issue so long as they're not man-made ones, as long as you maintain good health and you eat good organic food and work out and don't hold on to toxic emotions, et cetera, et cetera. But when I was <laughs> the beginning of this whole thing, I bought into the idea that there was a gain of function lab made virus. In fact, I was one of the people who was taking the natural version that you can buy at Whole Foods or natural grocers or Trader Joe's of like disinfectant wipes and like wiping down all my food before I brought it inside. And this was back in like January of 2020, because I was following some Reddit subs and I saw how they were describing that a virus likely escaped from a lab. And this is before the mainstream was really touching on any of this. This was around December 2019 leading into January 2020. I was like, oh, my God, they finally succeeded in creating one of these bioweapons or creating another one of them. And this is going to be lethal because I was seeing all these images and videos of Chinese people dropping dead in the streets, which I now have come to understand was total state run Chinese propaganda. But I bought into it. I did buy into it at the very beginning. Yeah, I bought into it as well. I thought I remember going on Christmas vacation and talking to my nurse and saying, hey, we're going to see this number spiking soon, and we're going to look at these plane patterns where everybody's traveling. We're going to see it here in the United States any moment now. And we came back, and sure enough, it's spread more and more. Yeah, and interesting because so what happened with me is, again, I was initially bought into this fear. And we cover this during the end of COVID, too, in a session called the COVID Origin Story, where we go day by day from roughly November 2019 through February 2020, looking at the news coverage and then what was happening in actuality, like that you can, that's public knowledge behind the scenes with some of these NGOs and some of these governmental organizations. And what we found revisiting some of those things is that this gain of function narrative was being covered in the mainstream at the very beginning. At the very beginning of this whole thing, there were several mainstream news articles talking about the need to protect against gain of function experiments, the need to to put a more more put more regulations on gain of function experiments, and even some of them talking about the likelihood that a virus escaped from the lab in Wuhan. Some of them were talking about that, but then what happened was that narrative that was inserted at the very beginning was then squashed. So all of us who were already like conspiracy minded, aware of the corruption, looked at that and they're like, oh, my God, they're there it is. they're covering up the true information. That's what yeah. I thought, too. I was like, oh, my God, they're trying to cover this up. Holy crap. They're, this is going to kill millions of people. But then as I continued to observe 
reality, like not buying into any of the spectrum of information on the alternative side or on the mainstream side is I just observed reality. I was like, this isn't adding up. Like that, that, they're talking about a lab made virus that looks like people are dropping dead in the streets, but this has been two months now around March, three months into this whole thing. And I'm not seeing any of that happen. What the heck? And then I, by chance, come across a video of Dr. Tom Cowan describing following a pod of dolphins who are getting sick off the coast of Florida using just an analogy, right? And he asked someone in the audience what what their first thought would be if they saw a pod of dolphins all getting sick in mass. And the person answered, who put some crap in the water? Of course, like, when it comes to any animals or things like that's our first thought. It's not, oh my God, what virus is spreading throughout their community is causing them to become sick. It's who, what was their food source cut off? Was there a new toxin that was introduced because of industrial chemicals that are, that were polluting the environment as human beings? And don't get me started on the climate change thing. I think that's complete nonsense, but of course (laughs) human beings do pollute the environment and cause issues like glyphosate is a major problem in our food, but that's that's a conversation for another time. But the earth is not going to collapse yeah. No, dude, no, no chance, no chance. But yeah, I think people tend to jump to ex- extremes on that on both sides. And so we do need to treat the earth well. We need to treat God's creation because it is providing us food and sustenance and homes home. and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Exactly, man, of course. Any, anyway, like I, I was, I listened to that analogy and I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Like why do we think that way for animals? But when it comes to, our health, the first thing we think of is, oh, I caught a, I caught a virus from Joe down the street because he was sick and his kids were sick, et cetera, et cetera. And then I started looking into virology and really looking into the details of everything that I just described. And I found that the foundation for virology is nonsense. And there's actually several other known things that are causing us to be sick, even causing us to be sick amongst groups of us, exposure to similar toxins, similar eating habits, similar EMF exposure inside our home, similar emotional trauma that we're suppressing, a unique combination of all those things. And then there's also other possible explanations for the phenomenon of two people experiencing something that does not have to include any particle being passed between them. As an example, when women are around each other for an extended period of time, they're known to sync up on their menstrual cycles. Is that caused by a contagious virus? I would argue no. There's no proof of that either. And no one even thinks that when it comes to that phenomenon. There's like, oh, it's just something happens. Or like when I'm around you, Sam in person and I yawn, you're likely to yawn. Did I pass you the yawn virus? Like it's contagious. There's well, other, maybe not yeah, the same way. Yeah, it might be, but that's the thing. There's pheromones that come into the picture. There's even mirror neurons that might come into the picture. There's bioresonance, knowing that we have a measurable and observable biofield, the human biofield that surrounds our body. We have an electromagnetic field that surrounds our body, and we know that electromagnetic fields are impacted by other electromagnetic fields. That's a well-known scientific fact, and we just these other possible explanations for what is causing this phenomenon simply have not been explored thoroughly because we've been so myopically focused on this unproven idea that disease is spread via these obligate intracellular parasites that are passed from person to person when it's complete nonsense and totally unproven. So when it comes to this gain of function thing, 
like we, I see the alternative community latching onto this idea of a man-made bioweapon that was released. And even without getting into the no virus issue, as an example, Nick Hudson from pandata.org out of South Africa has compiled a essentially several thorough analyses of health measures that were implemented across the world and also mortality data across the world showing that when just looking at the mortality data, there is absolutely no proof of a novel threat. There's none. And that's without even getting into the no virus thing. And then when you get into the no virus thing, it's there, there's literally no foundational proof that the virus exists or causes any sort of disease. And so when it comes to gain of function, I think that I don't, again, I don't think that there's some grand scheme amongst all scientists to to manipulate us when and hide the truth from us. I think maybe at the tippy top there is, but mostly this is just rooted in conditioning. And during the end of COVID, my personal favorite session, I think number 16 on module two, the gain of function narrative, doctors Mark and Sam Bailey, out of, two medical doctors out of New Zealand, go into the granular details of known gain of function experiments, showing that it's all based in unproven assumptions. And gain of function is just another fear-based narrative that the alternative community is now latched onto that will allow this nonsense to perpetuate again into the future. One thing I want to kind of comment on what you said is you don't think it's some big conspiracy. Maybe, maybe at the tippy top there's some conspiratorial ideas. I agree with you, but slight disagree also because I, I do think there is a, con, a quote conspiracy but I think it's even bigger than that there's not these guys in some star chamber going alright what are we going to do this today brain take over the world they're not doing that it's that unseen realm it's these creatures that rebelled against God and, and I know for some people and, I, and you, you may even disagree with me but there, it sounds absolutely fantastical and crazy and all that but they're real. Possession is real. And it, it's a whispering in the ear. I don't it's disagree when, at all, actually. Okay, <laughs> good. And when you hear that whispering in the ear and you're like, oh, this is good for those group of people and it's good for me. But in reality, when you don't take the time to think about the all the consequences, you get disaster and destruction. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And you could frame that in different ways or a unique combination of always and that there are literal energetic demonic entities that we can't see that aren't physically like apparent to us, but that absolutely seed ideas to us. You could also say that it's our own conditioned beliefs, a unique combination of the two. There, there are several things at play because ultimately just speaking to physical known reality without even going into that. And I do actually 100% agree with you on that, but I tend not to focus on that because people will be like, oh, this guy. So he's saying viruses don't exist, but now he's saying this thing that he can't prove exists. And this is where I emphasize the difference between belief. I believe in those things and my beliefs surrounding those things. I do not impose or infringe or push that belief upon other people. And then ultimately with virology and viruses, Right now, that is no more than a belief system because there's no physical material proof of them. And the difference is people are taking that belief and then wielding it and weaponizing it upon the entire human population. That's the difference between a belief and knowing and application. So just to emphasize yeah. that quickly, but and like the, these, yeah, go ahead. To, to further that thought a little bit is religion is great and religion is your belief, whatever it is. It answers a different question than science does. And we should the listener, the viewer should never have to believe science. Never. Because then it's a faith. No. It's not science. Science is proving. And that's the, the whole point. Right. Yeah. It's proving this, this the thing is literally a religion. 
This thing is a religion now. The virology is a religion. Allopathic medicine, for the most part, aside from emergency and acute care and certain specialties, has become a religion. It, it absolutely is. has. And that's the issue right now because it is going off of blind faith in these experts who can know where this non-existent, non-proven to exist, non-proven to be pathogenic threat is, and only they can know. And anyone who questions them is immediately branded a heretic and they're cast aside. It's literally no different than a very dogmatic religion. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing and potentially worse because irrespective of actual religious or spiritual beliefs, they're pushing this upon the entire human population. So it's definitely worse. But with that, these guys, these dudes at the top, whoever the hell they are, they understand human psychology very well, very well. So ultimately, like when it comes to scientists, doctors, the military is actually a great example of this. And I know you can't really touch on this as much as I openly can, but I will yeah, say please it. do. So please do. Yeah. So the three experiments that we can look at that sort of give us, allow us to peer into the behavior of human beings are the Milgram experiments, the ash experiments and the Stanford prison experiments. So the Milgram experiments, I urge people to look this up, set out to determine how often human beings would obey authority in the face of causing another human being harm. And what they found through this experiment, which dealt with the person that was actually the subject of the experiment, delivering what certain levels of shock to someone who was answering questions that was an actor actually behind a wall. And as he kept delivering shocks based on this person answering these questions, that person started to yell and scream, oh my God, stop, you're gonna kill me, you're gonna kill me. And the subject of the experiment would look up to the authority figure and say, is it okay if I continue their yelling that they're gonna, they're gonna die? And the authority figure would say, yep, they signed up for it. And that person in the face of causing actual harm would conform to authority. I think it was over half of the time and it was done on several people. So over half of the people would conform to what the authority told them to do. I believe it was close to 80% conformed Go ahead. and a very small percentage actually stopped and said, no, yeah, I'm not was, doing this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that informs us of the human psyche there. And then the ash experiment set out to determine how often human beings will conform to groupthink. And I forget the exact nature of the experiment, but it essentially went something like this. Everyone else that seemed to be participating in the experiment were actors that were told to give a wrong answer, to verbally give a wrong answer. And someone would essentially hold up something like flashcards. And let's say there was very clearly in observed reality, four dots on the flashcards. And they would hold up the flashcard and these other people would answer three, they would yell out three. And this person who is actually the subject of the experiment, again, trying to determine how often people would conform to groupthink, over half of them, I think it was like 65% of them, would say three along with the other people in the face of a clear, clear showing of four dots, right? So again, in the face of reality showing them the exact opposite, human beings over half the time will conform to what the group is saying or doing just because they want to go along with the crowd. So those two things, and then the Stanford prison experiments had to be stopped the first time they were conducted because of how brutal people became. So it was done at Stanford University. I think it was done in a dormitory. And two thirds of the people, these were just college students as volunteers, were assigned to be 
prisoners. One third was assigned to be the prison guards. And they had to stop the experiment because the ones that were taking on the role of prison guards literally began brutalizing and physically abusing and verbally abusing those that were prisoners because they had a position of authority. So when it comes to this whole charade surrounding COVID, especially with those operating as, let's say, agents of any health authority or agents of any literal like governmental authority, it takes a very strong mind. Dr. Sam Sigaloff and other people takes a very strong mind for someone to stand up against and go against what the rest of the group is doing in the face of authority telling them to do certain things. And that's what we have with what's happened with this whole charade the past three and a half years. It's been an apocalypse. And I mean that in the true sense of the word means uncovering. Apocalypse means to uncover, doesn't mean the end of the world. And it has been an uncovering, a demasking, if you will, because I'm sure you're just a few years younger than me, but this is the thought that went through me and most people that I knew in high school when we learned about the Holocaust. How could they do this? How could they do that and then go home to their family every night and hug their kids and then be putting people in gas chambers and ovens during the day? This is how we did it. And they actually would disappear if they went against it. Here, we just had minor social pressure on Facebook. Yeah, isn't it unbelievable? And that's really shows us how cowardly, how disconnected spiritually, how just disconnected from reality human beings have become. There's actually another session during the end of COVID called the digital phenomenon of COVID. And it discusses how the only way they were able to really carry this out is because we as human beings, ironically, I'm talking to you on using the, the platform that I would be describing here, but it can be like, it's just a tool that can be used for good or for bad. Obviously we're spreading ideas that is helping to dissolve illusions. But the, the point is this could have never happened prior to the digital era to the magnitude that it occurred. And I think that they attempted to do something like this with HIV AIDS, but we were still analog people at that point. Like, now we literally have our brains in our pockets. Let's think of how many times now you don't even have to think about something because you just know subconsciously that, oh, my phone has that information now. I don't have to memorize these things. I don't have to write it down on a piece of paper. It's all on my phone. It's like a secondary brain. And that brain has us glued to it at all times for those of us who are unaware. And most of the population is unaware. So they start seeing things projected on these black rectangles and then creating an overlay of it in observed reality, especially because everyone else around them is doing the same thing, thus perpetuating that false, completely false illusory reality into real reality, thus making it appear more real. That's what's happening. This is the only time in human history where people have been isolated, but not alone. Because you're isolated by yourself in your own home, but you have this community that that has absorbed you into it, the Borg, if you will, or the hive mind. And it's all about this, the science and virus and all this. And they're all going the same direction. Previously, if you were alone in your home, you'd be alone in your home and you would have no community. So you'd be pressured to leave your home to visit your neighbors to actually get real community. But here you're getting that kind of artificial desire filled artificially with some bit of community and once you enter a community like that you're not you're going to rat your neighbor out you're going to rat your kids or your parents out before you leave that community because it's that strong totally agree yeah and it's just i think it in many ways for those who are unaware 
the digital realm has just amplified the worst of all human behaviors. Like people behave online and speak to other people online in ways that they would never do in person. Like, I'm sure you get it. I get it all the time. Because in person, if someone said that to someone else, they'd be missing their teeth as they walked away. That doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. That's the whole point. (laughs) No, it never does. But it just amplifies the worst of human behavior. And it's just, this is a perfect example. The whole charade of the last three and a half years, it's amplified. Like, people were literally taking what the authority figures were saying Based that was being projected to them via these black rectangles and projecting that onto their own reality in the face of their own lived and observable experiences showing them the exact opposite. That's how disconnected we are, and that is scary as hell. Yeah, there's so much power in that little black mirror that everyone stares at and is connected to. And right now it's only in your hand. In the not-so-distant future, they'll it'll be different. They're... I don't know if it'll be just like this, but there may be some injectable that goes into your brain that projects inside of your eye. There's patents that explain this. So it's really not that far-fetched what I'm saying. Yeah. No, not at all. Not far-fetched even a little bit. And I think that's the general direction they're attempting to go with some of the technology that is inside these injectable products. And we have three different sessions during the end of COVID. I know one person who's been a guest, actually, no, two of them have been a guest on your podcast, Dr. Anna Mahalchi and then also Dr. Lee Merritt. They both have their own respective session called the mRNA shots part, part one and then part three. And then part two of the mRNA shots is with Dr. Anna Maria Oliva out of Spain. And they're all three diff- differing perspectives in some ways, but the general sentiments is that it's very clear that this technology and this agenda is for the purpose of transhumanism absolutely is and one thing you just kind of touched upon that i want to help alleviate fears because so often in this field where we're looking into things that we don't really fully know it seems like there's a lot of conflicting information and really i think what we all see is something is wrong and this is the angle that we find at it And, and the truth is probably more like in the middle rather than being hardcore one idea or the other idea it's usually somewhere in the middle Yeah. And it just depends on any given situation. So like, obviously some things are absolutely black and white. As an example, maybe I'm coming from a biased perspective and I urge anyone to tune into the end of COVID to look into this. When it comes to saying something X exists and causes Y, of course we need proof that X exists and causes Y. So that's pretty straightforward in black and white. I actually just had a tweet about that, that I said, you don't need to uncover all of the dark secret occult rituals and things that they're doing or all the dark secret information they're keeping from us. And you don't need to even have a quote conspiracy theorist mind when it comes to discovering the foundational information surrounding COVID. Literally all you need is an elementary understanding of the scientific method, logical fallacies, and an ability to read a paper and read the method section, you will find that the process that is described is entirely pseudoscientific and nonsensical. But the point is, yes, when it comes to something like this, especially when we're venturing into unknown territory, I haven't found anyone, I don't know if you have, that has been directly involved with the manufacturing process of these shots. So I don't know exactly what the constituents really are. And ultimately, like, 
when it comes to some of these dark field microscope slides and images, as an example that Dr. Anna Mahalcha shares, like, and she does a really good job acknowledging this, this is speculation because we weren't involved with the manufacturing process. We can't know exactly what it is that we're looking at, but we're seeing some pretty weird stuff. And of course, dark field microscopy has its limitations, especially magnification limitations. But the point is, like, we can't know entirely what's going on. All that we know, and this is why we emphasize this, there's no proof of the alleged cause in the first place that ever necessitates receiving any of these products to begin with. And even without going there, I think your audience is probably already attuned to this. You can, even if viruses do exist, and let's say some people still believe that vaccines are not all that bad or they're just a little bit unsafe and ineffective. I have now thousands of examples of people that I know who have kids that have never received any of these injectable products ever, and they thrive. They thrive, especially when compared to their peers. And that's another session that we, and actually a presentation that I gave during this called Big Pharma's Dark Past. During that presentation, I go into several of the studies that have been done comparing the health of completely unvaccinated children to the health of fully vaccinated children. And the data is crystal clear on it. The unvaccinated children went out by a long shot. Yeah, I wish this happened before I had my children because they did receive some vaccines and I don't think they've been horribly injured. They don't seem like they are. But if I had my way, I would have now I would never have given them any. Yeah, that's the thing. And this is an ironic, I keep referring to the end of COVID, but because the whole purpose of the end of COVID is we cover all the granular details. But during the end of COVID, we have another session titled Voices of the Victims Part 2. Part 1, we interview people who have been injured or have family members who passed away because of the COVID shots. But in Part 2, we venture into the understanding that this is not a new phenomenon. Vaccine injury is not exclusive to the COVID shots. And there's a positive story on the back end of this. So in this session, we interview Dr. Joe, or not Dr. Jody Meshik, Jody Meshik, who has recovered her son from autism that came on just after receiving nine shots in one sitting. So essentially her story is she already had an inkling to not vaccinate her son, but she was pressured by this stand-in or this on-call pediatrician at the doctor's office that she typically went to where she had already made an agreement with that doctor that she wanted to delay vaccines for her son. And this pediatrician that was on call shamed her for her decision and like really shamed her saying that she was going to kill her kid, et cetera, et cetera. So then she agreed to get him caught up and he gave her son nine shots in one sitting. He then just after that regressed. And this is the story we hear from parents all around the world. He regressed, stopped making eye contact, stopped babbling and speaking, stopped doing some of the things that he had already done basically instantly. She brought him to a neurologist a few months later. The neurologist diagnosed him with autism. And she said, I don't accept that diagnosis. And she had to deal with the shame and guilt surrounding what she had agreed to. But after she overcame that and came back to the understanding that she made an unconscious decision, but there are solutions to this, she began detoxifying her son. And her son has since completely recovered from autism. He's a normal functioning 13-year-old kid who plays basketball. And you would never know that he was once diagnosed as autistic. And so the point is, 
that there is hope for those, even for those who got the COVID shot to detoxify. The human body is a miraculous creation by God that has an, an amazing ability to overcome and heal anything. But we have been conditioned to believe otherwise. And because of that conditioning, we make these decisions to inject these things and listen to the experts. So for some, healing is an arduous task that can be very difficult, but it is possible. Absolutely it is. Would she, do you think she'd be willing to talk to me? Heck yeah, she would. I can definitely put her in touch with you. Yeah, she'd I'd totally. love to have her on. Tell the audience what she yeah, did. Her exactly. story's incredible, man. That's amazing. Yeah, her story is really incredible. And it's like, I actually know several other people who have the same story too. It's totally possible to reverse the issues surrounding this. And that's why, like, I I understand and I acknowledge, and of course we feature during the end of COVID, several people who have been injured by these products. And there's, of course, this phenomenon of people dropping dead suddenly. Of course there is. But ultimately, like, I am personally taking on a position of wanting to help those who made the mistake to receive these products to understand that they don't need to be so entirely fearful of dying. They do need to detoxify and they're going to have to do some hard work, especially sorting through the cognitive dissonance surrounding why they even made that decision in the first place. But they don't need to be perpetually fearful because the thing that needs to be dispelled more than anything is fear surrounding our bodies failing us. Because when we understand that our bodies are miraculous creations of God, that they can overcome, that they can heal, that there's no need to be fearful of these submicroscopic viruses to begin with, that completely cuts out the need to ever receive a vaccine in the first place. So for those who've received the shot, rather than shame them, call them vaxtards and sheep like some of these people do, I say, hey, you made a mistake. Okay, now it's time to heal. It's time to detox. And we have a session called Detoxifying from the Shots where we give two perspectives on how to detoxify from the childhood shots, but also the shots that have been given in the last three years. And it ultimately is possible to heal. It might be very difficult. Is everyone going to be able to heal? No, but there there is hope for people. That That's what I love to hear is as a family medicine physician, it's never my job to take hope away. It's also my job not to give false hope. But so many people in this health freedom movement are just so callous. They're like, oh, you're a bunch of sheep, you idiot for getting the vaccine. The vaccine, of course, you died. And it's good Lord, that's a human being that you're talking to like that. And they have Amen. living family members who might read these comments. And just what is it doing to your own heart being that callous to human life? Yeah, I completely agree. And it's uh, it's really frustrating because... Like I always, do I get irritated at some of the people who can't see by now? Absolutely, I do. Of course I do, man. And do I lash out sometimes? Yeah, I probably do. But ultimately what I always try to fall back on, and I think this is a good exercise for anyone, most people in this space either had already explored government corruption or had to some certain degree, or they may just be a free thinker or like me, witnessed someone who was harmed by modern medicine adopt a natural approach to healing and then drastically heal. That's what I saw happen with my wife, right? She's been in remission, basically resolved. There, there, there is no 
such thing as autoimmune diseases. Your body does not a- attack itself. My, mo- my wife was diagnosed with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis in 2007, suffered with that until 2016 under the care of multiple rheumatologists, and then simply adopted a natural approach to health, tapered off all of her medications, and stopped listening to what the experts said, and drastically healed. Had I not experienced that firsthand, I don't know that I would be able to see what's gone on the last three years. This is military grade propaganda and conditioning that has been wielded upon society, especially at a time when we're so connected to these devices and not connected to reality. So we need to learn or at least remember to have compassion for the people who cannot see, especially because that will help invite them into understanding that some of the stuff they're buying into might be BS. Like when you're shaming them and mocking them, belittling them, is that gonna wanna help them look into what you're saying? Is that making your perspective more attractive? No, not at all. If you wanna create an echo chamber of other nasty, hateful, spiteful people, sure, go ahead, continue talking like that. I don't think it's gonna work out well for you and it's probably gonna cause you to be unhealthy in the long run. Yeah, and I think, let's say those other people never even hear it it still injures yourself and changes who you are and makes you this callous, I don't want to say evil, but but starting down that road at least to where you don't care about human life anymore. And that's a dangerous place to be going. That's where you start shoving people into cold to gas chambers. Yeah, cold, disconnected from your own heart, which is your connection to God. Like your heart is your connection to God, in my mind at least, and that starts disconnecting you from a deeper understanding of the purpose of all this. Those other people who are buying into these illusory belief systems and disempowering belief systems, they are also creations of God. And when we start behaving in nasty way towards them, we're not reflecting the love of God in any way. Just have to Telling say that. them the truth, even okay. if it's a hard truth, yeah, is absolutely a loving thing to do, but you don't need to be nasty and demeaning and belittling when telling that true thing. One thing we have to remember is that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities of darkness in the unseen realm. Meaning, let's say I disagree with Alec about something. There is a spirit in him that's disagreeable with me, not him as a person. And I can have those disagreements, but I'm not, I don't hate him. I may disagree with him, Amen. but I need to show love to him. And that's what we need more in this world. Yeah. Amen. Amen, man. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. I want to be respectful of your time because we've been, I could go all day. (laughs) This is great. I think we're what, like 75 minutes in? Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else you want to touch on. I can. Yeah. the, The last thing I'll say is this. The other side to this whole COVID trade that we haven't really touched on, that we touch on quite a bit during the end of COVID aside from the science, is coming to a a more empowering philosophical discussion regarding our relationship as men and women to these authority figures and to this agenda. Because we tend to forget that, yes, there are absolutely energetic dark forces at play that that, that are possessing these entities who are carrying out this agenda. And I would say probably at the tippy top, they're intentionally summoning them, but that's another conversation. <laughs> but what the point is that <laughs> for real though, but yeah, I agree with you. I the agree. people who are carrying out this agenda are people. 
Yeah, but they're people. They're men and women that are carrying this out. We are also men and women. The only way that they are able to continue doing what they're doing and what they'll do with another future pandemic in 2025, like Bill Gates is talking about in the World Health Organization, or the, even the climate change agenda. I think it's going to be a, a merger of the two where they're now saying that, that climate change is causing more viruses to, and even like melting of the ice caps is causing ancient viruses to come out. So it's a merging of the two, which is why it's still important to dispel these myths. But the point is, like the only way they continue on with this agenda is because we buy into the belief, the conditioned belief that other men and women who call themselves some form of an authority have the right to dictate what we as other men and women do with our lives. And ultimately, there are far more of us than them. And all that it requires, and it seems so simple that it's stupid, is that the majority of us who believe that they have that authority and power over us simply just stop. Stop believing into it. Stop buying into the belief and stop making decisions out of either fear or or in actuality, like making decisions out of what they may or may not do if you don't listen to what they say. And that is a tough one for some people because like people have gotten themselves into positions where it may be a little bit more difficult, but ultimately this is based on a conditioned belief. It is a belief that other men and women have a right to tell us what to do. And if we dissolve that belief and understand that our freedom does not come from government, our freedom comes from God, the creator who gave that freedom to us. And that's where our source of freedom comes from. We can end this stuff right now. I'm holding up the Constitution. Declaration. In the Declaration yeah, of okay. Independence. And yeah. it echoes that same thought that our rights don't come from the government. They don't come from other people. They come from the mere fact that we exist and we're created by God. Exactly. Exactly. And funny thing, a position that I've come to with respect to the Constitution is that, yes, the Constitution Bill of Rights lay that out very clearly. Like it could not be more clear, but ultimately that is just another document that they will then trample on and be like, and they're even talking about rewriting a new Constitution that's a global Constitution based on the World Health Organization's new dictates, which is just unbelievably absurd, which is why it's, I don't care what any of your documents say. I don't care. Great. You have a new one that you're implementing. Good. You think the old one is irrelevant. Great. I think it's irrelevant too, because I don't care what your documents say. I know that my freedom as a man is not bestowed upon me by you, another man who simply calls yourself X title of some government institution. I don't care. And the more people who take on that approach and simply just say, no, that dictate that you're giving is not for me. I'm going to continue living my health, life in a free, healthy way, and I'm not going to infringe or impose upon others or push my ideas upon others, but I'm going to do what I think is best for my own life based on my moral principles that I have cultivated in my own family and not what you are telling me to do. And the problem is we've become an immoral and corrupt society, I think in large part because we are not cultivating morality in our own homes, having to wrestle with these moral things on our own. We are simply just turning to government and conflating our own moral position with what the government says we should do. And that then leads to immorality as the government itself begins behaving immorally. Amen. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Anyway, we talk about that during the end of COVID too. Awesome. That's another very important piece of this. I hate to cut our conversation off. I know you got other important things to do. I hope to have you on again because I, I just, I feel like you're a kindred spirit and you open my mind to things that, that I'm not as, as, I don't know how to say this, crunchy granola, barefoot. I don't know how to say it in an un- insulting way. <laughs> that's, um, that, 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 I don't take I don't take insult to that at all. That's hilarious. No, and that's true. But I, that's I, very true. I love true. that, and I like going that direction, learning more about it, because I'm more of the close toe shoe kind of guy. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's good to learn about this and to be expanded yeah, by that. For and sure, I just for sure. I just love how you just visiting with you and learning more about this with you. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. You're a fun person to talk to because it's ultimately it's I remember feeling this when I was in the military because I was in the army up until April of 2021. So like the first whole year and a half of this nonsense, I was still in the army and I felt so alone, man, like so alone. And I think there's a lot more of us out there than we realize. And it's always good to connect with someone who has been in the military, has been a part of this or is currently, who can see through a lot of the agendas that are going on and are standing up and expressing their own freedom. And I think you're a perfect example of someone who's done that. And I have a lot of respect for you, for Doc Chambers, for Teresa Long and these other men and women that are in the military that are saying, this isn't right. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to choose the harder right over the easier wrong, which is ironically what I learned in the West Point cadet prayer. And I see the overwhelming majority of the Department of Defense doing the exact opposite of that, which is just really interesting. But you're one example who's remaining as a stronghold in the U.S. military, and we need more of that. And I'm sure there are more, and they just need to have the courage to speak and stand up. I'm just glad that when I stood up, there was someone who's already blazed that trail, and he's you. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. No, thank you. All right, God bless. Awesome. Thank you. Just a reminder for everyone out there, the duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. I recently got a new affiliate. It's Harvest Right Freeze Dryer. I've been using them since 2016. It's a great way to preserve food for long periods of time, up to 25 years if stored properly. Please take a look at it. Use the link below. Thank you.